the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again, welcome to the show. Coming up, flooding on the New South Wales and Victorian border means bringing in the shearers by boat and flooding hitting a large swathe of northern New South Wales as well, causing a new round of damage to crops that were nearly ready to harvest. For the most part, any crop that was sort of a bit later in the plant, like the majority of ours, they stood up fairly well to the rain and uh, haven't fallen over or anything like that quite yet. But anything that got in early and got up and going and uh, was fairly close to harvest before the rain has um, has copped a bit of damage and sort of fallen over and all sorts of damage there, I'd imagine. It's a bit too early to tell just yet, though. You can always send us a text and let us know what's happening at your place. Uh, send us a text, 0467 That's the number to text me here at the Country Hour, six minutes past 12. But uh, first up today, let's stay in the north of the state now and uh, the Moree Plains. They're experiencing a flood different to any that they've seen before, they say, with the Mihai River. Uh, sitting was sitting at around 10.45 metres. It peaked at six, uh, 10.69 metres yesterday. Uh, it said that about 380 homes, at least 380 homes and businesses have been inundated with water and they say this is worse than the flood of 2021. Not quite as bad as a flood of 55 though. Outside of town, graziers have uh, mostly uh, had, the, had the time to shift their livestock to higher ground but those with the crops well, they're seeing them inundated and there's not much they can do but just sit and watch the water rise. Maury Plains uh, Shire Council Deputy Mayor Susanna Pearce joins me now. Good afternoon. Hi, Michael. They're not great situation. Worse than 2021, which was a pretty bad flood in itself. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's pretty devastating. So it's our fourth biggest flood on record. So not what we needed, just as we were gearing up to uh, get into, stuck into our winter crop harvest. And now, obviously, Deputy Mayor, so the town of Moree itself, uh, many ha- uh, ha- homes and uh, businesses flooded there, which is a concern. Absolutely. So um, I'm actually isolated at the moment, like many in our shire. So we, uh, we're out on farm just um, between Moree and Pally, and we've been isolated since Wednesday, but I'm getting lots of reports from what's actually happening in Moree. And the flood water is just not receding. So it's it, uh, the peak was at 11am yesterday and still we're technically at major flood level. So the last I looked at it, it's still at 10.17 metres. Right, okay. So it's just hanging around for a long time, making it very hard for anyone to get in and do clean-ups. Uh, the evacuation orders are all still in place. So it's really just a, a painfully slow wait for everybody and it will be also a painfully slow wait as we see what happens as this moves across the floodplain and heads further west. And, of course, you hadn't finished the clean-up from the previous flood in 2021. No, no. So personally, so our house, our home in Moree went underwater in 2021 and, um, look, it uh, has taken a huge amount of time with insurance to actually, you know, get claims through and we were unfortunately waiting to lift our house because uh, we don't want to have to have this happen again. But... Unfortunately, we didn't get it up quite fast enough, so we've had water go through and uh, a friend kindly kayaked around to check in on the place for us and, uh, yeah, we've had over a foot of water 
through there. Um, but there's no point even trying to rush to get in there because it's it's draining so slowly. Mm. So I don't think people will be able to bring start to clean up in earnest until late today and really tomorrow it was when people will get stuck in. And Oscar was saying to me earlier, he was on the phone to the insurance, so good luck with that. Um, now, uh, winter crops though, they're underwater and pe- just when people were thinking about harvesting some of those winter crops. Yeah, absolutely. So ordinarily, we're very proud that we're the most productive agricultural show in Australia. So normally we get about a billion dollars worth of produce out of the Maori Plains every year. And uh, this is just absolutely devastating because um you know lots of people would have been gearing up to start on barley and canola um there's a lot of wheat in around the district and it just will depend on how long those crops have have sat underwater whether they're waterlogged or whether they've actually been completely inundated and we're hearing lots of reports of inundated crops um and the challenge will be is that once even the water recedes is uh the roads are going to be in um really quite a terrible Well that's state. the other issue that's the other issue yeah. so the bitumen roads some of the bitumen roads have been washed away I gather not to mention the unsealed roads where all of the gravel would have been washed away um and councils really really um, pushing it uphill at the moment. They need uh, money to get those roads fixed but they also need labor which is in short supply too. Absolutely. So we haven't managed to get through all the flood repair works from the 2021 March floods. Uh, We're still getting through the backlog of work for that. It's just that the labour is a challenge. Um, There's a huge amount to get through. Uh, So we're going to have to be putting our thinking caps on and trying to find some innovative ways to get these roads up to scratch so that people can get some produce down them because, you know, we're, we're suffering enough loss as it is. We need that cro- those crops and that, that harvest to get to market. Mm. Well, have, having, and keeping it on farm for many is not going to be the solution. Well, no, you know, some of our bigger farmers um, have have suitable storage, but, you know, they're also going to need to make sure that storage is up high and mm. to suddenly turn around and develop pads and everything to get things stored on farm is you know, isn't going to be reasonable. So there are going to be a lot who, who still need to get it out and, and, and deliver immediately during harvest. So, yeah, but, we'll, you know, we'll be trying really hard to work with the farmers to work out where those crops are and do all we can to make sure that we can get them down the roads and, and get them into storage. Because we heard from uh, the Minister of the Roads Minister, Regional Roads Minister Sam Faraway, he's saying the money's there. He said he's, uh, I think he allocated $400 million to road assistance, but it sounds as though labour and getting it out, getting the bitumen on the, getting the, the tar on the road, so to speak, is going to be the hard part. So, I don't know, looking at Lions Club or Rotary or retired uh, people to help out or something, I don't, volunteers, I don't know, that, that's sort of that's what people are trying to get their head around yeah and that's what we're going to be working on we're catching up as a council this afternoon at two o'clock to start working on these things and and try to find some pragmatic solutions as i'm sure you understand you know public liability is a major issue Mm, so when we think well we can just get these farmers um with their their loaders and graders and everything out there on the roads Mm. um there are implications but we are very keen to work out how we can do it rather than looking at the barriers because we've just got to find a way Mm. now also new south wales farmers association today put our release saying that agronomists are predicting that conservative conservative losses is of 120,000 hectares of wheat. Didn't mention cotton, but they're saying just wheat, the estimated value there, $150 million from this widespread flooding in the Moree, Walgett, Narrabri area. Uh, Would that dovetail in what you're hearing, what you're thinking? Oh, absolutely. And look, most of our shire actually sits to the west. 
mm. and the uh, the water will continue to flow through to the west. So at the moment, it's moving really, really slowly because we do have huge crops in. So it's not moving as quickly and everything was already sodden. So we won't know. We won't know. It'll take, you know, another week or so to play out before we actually know what we're going to have there. And that's hoping that we don't have any more wet weather to top mm. things off. But, you know, it is, it's, and it's, it's a really cruel blow because, you know, many of our farmers are still working their way out of um, the unprecedented drought that we had for three years. So just trying to feel, just getting to the point where we're feeling like we're getting a break. And uh, unfortunately, uh, Mother Nature hits us again. Mm, unfortunately, indeed. Now, and also the cotton. Some people have just some people have just sown the cotton. Now that would have been washed away. Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a fair bit of cotton planted. And look, people do their best and try to look at forecasts, but forecasts change, and mm. we're all trying to uh, gamble with the weather. But um, there is a lot of cotton that was already up um, that has been inundated. And the challenge will be, even if farmers can get on to replant that cotton in uh, in the, the sowing window. So, yeah, look, it's, it's going to be huge. It's going to have a huge impact on our community because we are really heavily dependent on agriculture. When, when agriculture does well, the Maury Township does well. So... You know, we're going to feel the effects of this, absolutely. And um, if any of your listeners, once everything, once we're into recovery and get things back on track, please come and visit us because we're going to need visitors. We're yeah. going to need people to come and, and support our local businesses that are, you know, we've had businesses in our CBD that have also been flooded. So we're going to really need people's support to get us back up and running again. Visitors and tourism and uh, just general help from, from everybody by the sound of things. Um, Absolutely. Susanna Pierce, uh, appreciate your time and uh, good luck with, uh, with everything into the future. No worries. Thank you, Michael. We'll get through it, I'm sure. Okay. It's quarter past 12 on the country hour. Well, uh, let's uh, look at uh, other, this, the other scale of the damage because it's pretty hard to get a picture of just how widespread it is. Manager of the property Brownlee, which is located between Gundawindi and Moree, David Bury, took to the air yesterday to assess the damage on his place. At this stage, I think the uh, sort of, well, the, most of the water is obviously in the areas of like the Gwider and the Mihai River. Um, it's sort of, last report I saw, the Mihai was on the way down. It, it peaked at about 11 a.m. this morning at um, Oree. It made 10.5 metres, which it didn't quite push the um, 1955 level. It, it got as good as the um, 2012, I believe. So, um, yeah, it... Most of the water's in the in the Mihai and, the, and in the Guida sort of river areas and uh, obviously through town and to the west. And what are those crops looking like? For the most part, any crop that was sort of a bit later in the plant, like the majority of ours, um, were pretty good. Like they all hadn't, they're still green enough and um, they stood up fairly well to the rain and uh, haven't fallen over or anything like that quite yet. But anything that got in early and got up and going, and uh, was fairly close to harvest before the rain has um, has copped a bit of damage and sort of fallen over, and that'll be just not too sure what's going to be left for them when it dries out. All sorts of damage there, I'd imagine. It's a bit too early to tell just yet, though. And you're effectively cut off from all roads into your place. Is your place a bit of an island at the moment? Yeah, we sort of have little, um, well, we call them channels, but they're effectively sort of watercourses that run through the place and um, 
yeah, sort of cut us off. So, yeah, there'd be with the sort of water that's running through there and what we've seen today, like sort of upstream from us, there's a fair bit more water to come through. So I reckon that we'll be sort of locked in here for a good week and a half to two weeks before we get out by road. Are you concerned about how long it's going to take before you can actually get machinery on to get those crops off? How delayed is your harvest going to be, do you think? I don't know. I don't know as long as, depending on the weather that we've got in the next few weeks, if we don't get too much rain in the next two to three weeks, I don't know that we'll be put behind schedule too much just because a lot of our crops were later. Um, Our main concerns going forward now for the harvest is sort of road access and um, being able to get the grain off the paddock and getting it off the farm. But I think um, the way the roads are at the moment down here, we'll end up having to store pretty much all of it on farm, whether it be grain bunkers or silos or um, grain sausages or whatnot. I just don't see us being able to use the road trains much during the harvest. Like we normally heavily rely on them a fair bit to take a bulk of it away. But yeah, we'll... We'll have to handle most of it here ourselves, I think, this time, which will be the main concern. You have a look at the live traffic app there now. It's, um, I think they're still sort of saying that uh, nearly every road in the Moree Shire, you know, like Moree Plain Shire, is closed. Um, and all of the, most of the unsealed roads, um, you know, have got water over them and whatnot at the moment. David Bury is a manager of Brownlee. Well, it's not the growers that are having to sit idle when they listen to the sound of rain on the roof. Contract harvesters across Queensland are finding themselves sitting on their hands and not on a header as they wait for those paddocks to dry. Emerald contractor Jamie Janke is usually gearing up to take his headers south, but the recent rain means his usual schedule has been significantly delayed. Uh, a long way behind. We, we've we had a very mild spring up here. It's been tremendous for growing conditions and we've seen some phenomenal yields uh, well above central Queensland's average. All our cereals have exceeded sort of that four tonne to the hectare and chickpeas are doing three tonne, but that's all going to be um, yeah pretty dismal now. And as a result, it was late start and we've only yeah tick over halfway through sort of the Claremont area, they've only just on the brink of starting. Some guys have got going. But, yeah, in terms of Emerald, Gindy, Orion area, yeah, certainly not even halfway through a lot of the guys. And is your plan usually to be starting to think about heading south at this time of the month? Yeah, absolutely. Historically, we're wanting to be out of Emerald, or central Queensland by not much later than the 25th to head down to Moree. But at this stage, they're very wet. Um, we don't even know what's going to happen there. We've got to wait to see what floodwaters end up where. But, yeah, we're looking at losing quite a significant amount of work around that area, unfortunately. Jamie Janke runs a contract harvesting business out of Emerald. He was talking to Alice Marshall. Well, uh, let's head to the south now. The flooding situation in Moama continues. The Murray River is expected to peak at the major flooding level of 94.9 metres today, the highest it's been in nearly 30 years. And the State Emergency Service says with continuing rain, renewed rises are also possible later in the week. Local pilot Nicole Mitchell flew a plane over Echuca Moama yesterday to survey the, fl- uh, the flooding and spoke to Penny Burford and Simon Wallace from the air? I see a lot of water. <laughs> um, predominantly at this point, it, it, Tukas looks 
mainly flooded by the Golden River and the Murray is banked up. There's like a, a natural choke towards um, Barmer and it's sort of pushing out around the Barmer area. Uh, that's the Murray River. But um, yeah, Moama, there's a significant amount of water around Moama, around the, um, uh, the railway line, obviously heading north, the old Denelequin Road and that sort of thing. The, the levees appear to be holding quite a substantial amount of water from up here. The Capacity River area looks like it's dried out a lot, although the crops and so forth, there's a lot of, clearly see a lot of damage in that. Have you seen the water push out into the forests at all? We're hearing that that might be one of the reasons that that peak is slowing down. Can you see anything about that? The forests are full, yes. They're full right up to, say, the, the Barmer Hills. I'm over that at the moment. So, the, yeah, either, either side of that, the Cadell the fault line, that's um, the Cadell Tilt, our natural fault line, that's, that's holding back a lot of water uh, to the north of Moama. Um, and it's just all trying to push in, into low-lying areas. But the crops, because we've had such um, uh, really good crops this season that have unfortunately been spoiled, I think that's holding or slowed the water flow up a fair bit. And John, John McCartney tends to agree with me there. So good or bad, I'm not sure. But uh, that's slowed, slowed the flow up a fair bit. So the crops are actually helping hold it, hold it back a bit? I wouldn't say hold it back. It would say more like slow it up slow the flow, slow the rush, yeah. I haven't been up as far as uh, to, um, past the Sour, but um, there's another little choke in there and the, around the Narrows area, and that'll push the water north towards Denny, uh, what, I, what I'm seeing up here. And then, of course, it goes into Barmer Lakes. They're, they're, they're really full. Um, it's quite interesting to see Barmer Lakes being mega full again. And, and the bushland, every bit of bushland's underwater, yes. Yeah. Look like anything you've seen before? It's a, it's a completely different flood, this one. Uh, I saw it in 2011 and did quite a few flights to the west and there's a lot more water out there. And, and a little bit looking at Port a couple of days ago, so Port, Kerrang, they'll, they'll, they'll be really struggling the next few days when the Murray pushes oh, the water from the Murray around Echuca will push there. Around Echuca, I haven't seen, seen it push out towards Moama as much. So the whole, all, the, all the flood patterns and... Uh, projections have changed. So you've been up every day, Nicole. Have you seen it change noticeably over the last week or so? Oh, absolutely. Um, Thursday there was only a couple of paddocks to the north of Moama that were a bit damp, and it was it was inside all the tree lines, the forest lines, and everything. And now it's um, now it's quite significant. As local pilot Nicole Mitchell on the ground, Inspector Phil Eberly from Fire and Rescue New South Wales says over the weekend they had to do a welfare check and rescue of an elderly couple. Oh, the efforts have definitely ramped up. This will be the third one in 24 hours. Um, and it's not people doing stupid things by any means. It's just the situation is evolving, as the SES keeps saying. This, this is a flood event that is occurring, and when we get to the peak of it, we can only best estimate, but uh, things are still happening. Would you say these are the last residents who will be leaving before that peak is hit? No, I wouldn't say that. But I wouldn't say they're going to be the only ones and I wouldn't say they'd be the last ones. I'd just say that residents need to be mindful and do not be backwards and coming forwards. Contact the SES 132500. Tell them if you need help, we are here to help. Just don't enter floodwaters, don't drive in floodwaters and don't drink floodwater. 
Inspector Phil Ebley talking there to Penny Burfitt. Well, uh, in terms of the rain and the flooding, as a result, farmers have travelled by boat over an inland sea of floodwaters near the Murray River to help out a mate who needs to shear his sheep. The sheep have been marooned by kilometres of water near uh, uh, Turumbury near Echuca, and they were in desperate need of shearing, and the farmer was getting worried about the welfare of his animals. So a plan was hatched, and a group of shearers set sail to help out. Warwick Long spoke to one of them, Luke Barlow from Moema, who explains what happened. We uh, were busy helping a neighbouring farmer um, with his sandbagging around his house earlier in the week, and then after that we had to do a bit of evacuating of his sheds and stuff like that. And he said, he mentioned he had a mob of sheep that were basically on an island out in the middle of the Paracuta Kundruk Forest, and he was concerned about uh, the fire strike and maggots getting into them as uh, like he, there was no possible way to get them out. Um, and, yeah, they could have been sort of marooned on that island for up to the next two months, so likely that they would perish. So, um, yeah, he came up with a plan to airlift some uh, portable sheep yards in there and get a couple of local boys together and a couple of boats and, and go in there and just crutch them and treat them for any any future fly strike and, and put his uh, mind at a bit of peace. So this is incredible, Luke. So so the yards were airlifted into this marooned island and you and, and other local farmers went in by boat, is that right? Yeah, that's correct, Warwick. It was, um, it was probably a four-and-a-half-kilometre journey in through the forests, which in, can normally drive in no problem at all, but we were parked pretty much where the bitumen stopped and, and yeah, pushed the boat for some time till the water was deep enough to drop the motor in and then, then carried on motoring in there. In, in a dinghy. We're talking a little tinny here. Yes, little 12-foot uh, flat-bottom punt so that, um, you know, it was nice in the shallow water and, yeah, that was just easy access, only easy access that we could work out our way of getting in there. So with all the shearing gear, the, the four of you venture in there, what did you find once you got to where the sheep were? Oh, well, <laughs> we, did, we weren't really sure because the farmer hadn't um, been in there sort of four or five days. He said there's every possibility they could be, like everything they dropped in there could be underwater and we'd have to move it up on top of a higher bank or something. So we weren't sure how long we were going to be in there, what we were in for. It was a bit of a um, discovery mission. But uh, luckily when we got through all these flooded paddocks and pretty much boating over the top of fences to get there, that's how deep the water was. Um, yeah, we found the sheep were still dry and everything that was dropped there was there. So it was just a matter of getting uh, into action and setting up the yards and getting the sheep in and, and getting stuck into it. And what was it like once you got stuck into it? Did you get the job done? Yeah, yeah, it was all it was all good. Um, we didn't take any dogs in there because we feared there might be a lot of snakes. Obviously, if it's the only dry bit of ground for many kilometres, but um, so yeah, we managed to get them in. With it. they dropped a quad bike in there as well with the yards, and um, we just got started when a thunderstorm came through and just absolutely saturated everything. But we were prepared for that with our wet weather gear. But you know, the, obviously the sheep were saturated and uh, the yards were just a, a slippery mud mess but um yeah so it wasn't certainly wasn't great um um sort of situation to be in but there was only one way to get out and that was just get into it and get the job done and 
is it a huge relief to to the farmer involved to at least know that job ha- has been done and the and the welfare of those sheep is is going to be a lot better off because you did it? Uh, most definitely, Warwick. It was uh, it was quite evident the relief just when we turned up that morning. Yeah. Luke Barlow from near Moama in New South Wales uh, on the New South Wales Victorian border, speaking there to Warwick Long. Well, still on the issue of uh, flooding and uh, the roads, some pretty disturbing news over the weekend about a family who got into trouble in floodwaters in the north of the state because they relied on the advice from the online road safety tools like Google Maps and live traffic. The situation was resolved safely in this case, but it's prompted calls for more awareness of road conditions in rural areas and the limitations of live traffic and Google Maps. Danica Lees is a Chief Executive Officer of New South Wales CWA and she spoke to Sally Bryant about this issue this morning. There's an update from one of the local SES units, um, not Gunnada, but an outlying village, who, um, and that SES unit um, are very, very active actually on social media in letting the community know which roads are open, which roads are shut, you know, when they're likely to be open or shut, etc. And so they're a really, really good source of information on their own. Um, but not all units are able to do that. Um, and the reason that local SES unit is, or one of the reasons that they're so active is because of what you mentioned in your introduction is that, um, you know, relying on Google Maps and live traffic in and around that area just outside to the west of Canada, um, and like a lot of other areas in the state, it's just, um, it just doesn't exist. So, you know, when we, when we see, uh, you know, comments from politicians and those involved in emergency services and, and um, those types of roles. And the first comment we often see out of, you know, these people's mouths when they talk about um, how to stay safe uh, during a flood or, you know, some other some other natural disaster is to, you know, make sure you check live traffic and check the road conditions, which which is good advice, but, but only partly good advice because it actually doesn't cover the fact that live traffic doesn't cover a large part of the state. Um, and that is an issue because people are relying on the advice that they hear and see in media. Uh, and then they're going and, and, you know, confidently using live traffic, but then getting into trouble, which is putting them at risk and also putting emergency responders at risk. So what changes would you think the CWA and other um, rural lobby groups would like to see to the way live traffic or even Google Maps is updated or to the way people use them? Yeah, look, I think particularly live traffic because that is the one that is often referred to in any media, as I mentioned, people should check live traffic before they go anywhere. And I know there has been some lobbying on this matter already from New South Wales farmers and we'll certainly be looking at it from CWA as well. It was one of the recommendations from the flood inquiry um, that there be, you know, better information, more transparent information, more consistently available information and live traffic is, you know, a perfect way to do that. So I do know that there has been some recent funding announced in order to get um, a number of additional LGAs onto and using the live traffic app, but they're still not all there. Um, and we've got areas of the state uh, that are particularly plagued at the moment with flooding and repeated flooding over the years, uh, over this year particularly, I should say, uh, who don't have that funding to get to get their LGA onto the live traffic app. And, and that, that, I mean, that really needs to just happen immediately, to be honest. Yes, some concerns there. We've he- heard them before, actually. We heard them during the bushfires as well, concerns about Google Maps and live traffic. So uh, with the flooding, make sure uh, you, you're you careful and you check that information. 
uh, because it's not always right. It's uh, coming up to 28 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. We'll have uh, more on the flooding. Looking at uh, Lismore, they've got some more concerns up there with some more flooding. Uh, We'll hear about that shortly on the program. But before we do anything else, let's get some news headlines from Adam Storey. Good afternoon. I got lost in the Grand Canyon thanks to Google Maps once. Oh, it's set, it's, set it's, us down a fire it's, trial. It's a thing. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. as someone was somebody else I was talking to was saying a similar thing. They mm. were they were um, heading somewhere on they were um, biking somewhere and through a national park mm. and it sent them on this uh, fire trail. Yeah. which we, and they ended up lo- they actually ended up lost and they um, and then they ran out of service and they, they were lucky to double track. Uh, yeah, back. But, we I mean, basically did the same yeah. thing. Never got out of there till nightfall. Oh, That's really? a scary place yeah, to be. No, it's scary. Yeah, yeah. Well, Wolves look howling out for the and... coyotes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's like, guys, come on. <laughs> um, is there anything I can tell you about the weather that you probably don't already know? Uh, we've done a fairly comprehensive... I think you, I think you probably yeah, have, mate. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So we'll move on. Uh, it's budget week, federal budget week. Uh, so tomorrow night's the uh, big night. Um, going to be some big cuts to uh, infrastructure spending, uh, which the nationals uh, aren't too happy about. But the government says it does remain committed to uh, uh, infrastructure despite cutting millions of dollars worth of it. Um, it's come up with $10 billion worth of budget savings in that area, but it's also uh, looking at such things as commuter car parks. Yes, uh, and it's delaying all... some of the other projects Yeah, yeah exactly. Well. Uh, yeah. Car park as well as the uh, road and rail projects in Melbourne, some of the programs that are either facing the axe or um, being well, the delayed. the car parks weren't particularly popular. Well, in no, they could, they could probably wait a bit longer. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, the trial in the, uh, uh, sorry, the jury in the trial of the former Sydney swimming coach, Cole Daniels, has now been discharged after acquitting him uh, of 10 of his 21 child sexual abuse charges. And this morning, the jury returned another verdict of not guilty in relation to one count, but jurors were still divided on the remaining charges, and the judge said they have absolutely no hope of reaching a verdict on those, so that's now been dismissed. Uh, Boris Johnson it, has announced he's not going to run. Mm. Not uh, now, not yet. Not no, 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 not now, not until the next crisis. Uh, so that means uh, Rishi Sunak uh, looks likely to become the uh, the next leader. Uh, he does have another competitor, Penny Mordurant, but I saw over the weekend someone were questioning her uh, claim to naval service and whether it was legit. Uh, um, so maybe uh, maybe Boris was thought he was going to get a. Have a Hu Jintao type moment where he'd be escorted <laughs> <laughs> from the benches. It's like no Boris, not again. Yeah, I don't. Well, yeah, I think Richie's in the box seat at the moment. I'd yeah. say. Yep, yep. Be interesting to see. Well, he was actually out. what the actual uh, parliamentary party that, wanted. It was that the right. Conservative Party ballot that mm. got Liz Truss over the line. That's right. It's, yeah. Which was a much more conservative. Group of Grouping. people, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, than the party. So he obviously had the had the faith of the party, and that's uh, that seems to have won out in the end. In the in the, in the <laughs> after the list trust debacle. So we're just uh, just looking at to see when this actually uh, all happens. It's supposed to be by like the end of this week. Yeah, right? like yeah. it's much quicker than last time. I'll get back to you on that. Mm, okay, <laughs> some more homework. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay, thanks for that, Adam. Adam's story there with the news headlines. It's 25 minutes to one, and it's time to get some weather details now. Jordan Nataro at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon, Michael. So we know about the flooding and the issues there and the rain in Moree as well and uh, flooding there and also down south. Um, I guess the question is, is the rain going to stop and and when? What are we looking at in terms of the forecast? 
Yeah, so generally we are still in wet weather across parts of the east with severe storms through today through the west. It is going to be on a decreasing trend. As you notice, we have seen the cancellation of two of our severe weather warnings, one for the areas around the northern rivers and mid-north coast and one through the southern inland. They were cancelled earlier this morning as we start to see those rain rates decrease. Our threat from here on is due to more isolated severe thunderstorms that we are still looking at building as we head towards the later part of the afternoon. And broadly, as we get towards tomorrow afternoon, it is going to be focused into a smaller area around the northern and central coastal ranges and adjacent eastern ranges as well. From basically Wednesday onwards, we start to see a general drying in many areas due to, again, a stronger westerly component in the wind, which is one that we haven't seen, obviously, in quite a long time. It is going to start to see some warmer temperatures being pushed across to parts of the northern and central coastline, still some showers around parts of the southern and southern coastal ranges, and that's going to continue on as we get towards Thursday and Friday. As we head towards Saturday and into Sunday, it's going to be starting to follow our next weather system that's probably going to come across the state, particularly at this stage, our focus day for our next more widespread system is going to be coming into Sunday. At this stage, again, early days really to say what we're going to see from this system, but it looks to be another one that is going to be dragging down enough tropical moisture that we may see some more broader areas of rainfall across the state as we get through Sunday into Monday next week. Mm, okay, so that's not uh, great news as well. Um, and so it looks as though that those, those flood issues will continue uh, for some time then. Yeah, just due to the fact that we're obviously and any season conditions that we've got out west really are ones that slow water being pushed down those river systems is not enough time for obviously those follow-up systems to not be of effect uh, we are really again in best news ter- territory really for the fact that we are seeing particularly in that northeastern quadrant um, generally clearer skies from the later part of today all the way out towards as we get towards thursday friday is going to be seeing some storms around as i mentioned we are going to see that potential we may see some storm warnings but that comes with the territory as we're getting towards the warmer months but it is going to be again until we get towards Sunday and Monday next week where we are going to be a bit more focused across the state for potentially some more widespread severe weather potential. Okay, all right. So severe, wet, widespread severe weather potential from this the next system. Yeah, so any of these systems definitely always have that risk, mm. noting obviously those just background conditions. It is, again, just another very similar system where we obviously have enough moisture being dragged in. Still, as I say, early days exactly where the heaviest rain is going to fall, but all the ingredients are there that we may just have to, again, be a bit more focused uh, for that more next weather system coming across for what impacts it will bring. Okay, Jordan, not great news. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks for that. Catch you later. It's 21 minutes to one here on the country. Well, let's head to the northern rivers now as farmers are anxiously watching the rivers rise across that region. Simon Clark is a chicken and pecan farmer based just outside of Lismore. His property is surrounded by the Wilsons River, which is expected to reach a moderate flood level today. He told Keely Johnson he received more than 100 millimetres of rain over the past 24 hours and is on alert to evacuate if the conditions worsen. So we're located just close to Lismore. Uh, we're about five k's from Lismore, and uh, principally we, we we do organic eggs um, and pecans. We're cut off quite quite easily by the uh, flood waters um, when they, when it gets past a moderate flood. Is that so, happening at the moment? Are you cut off? Uh, yeah. Well, um, actually, the, the the road into town is passable, but they're, they're doing bridge work on the on the bridge. So. Um, that one's cut off and the alternative route uh, has been cut off by the floodwaters. And there's more rain coming down today. You know, how does that affect your business? Uh, 
well, yeah, it depends on, on how much rain we get. Um, it could be quite quite severe um, because I can't get workers in. I can't get um, my produce out. If it lasts for too, lo- too long, we, we can have difficulties actually filling, filling the silos and doing the mixes and everything. Uh, fortunately, I, I think this time we, we might be okay. Um, during the, the, the floods um, earlier on in the year, it's become a real real problem. Yeah, how yeah. badly were you impacted back in February? Because you're based, so your property is backed onto the Wilson River there? Yes, uh, we're surrounded basically on three sides by the Wilson River and, and all our road access is, is over the floodplain. And the February floods, we were in, severely impacted, um, especially as we lost power um, for during both floods. So it became a, a big issue. Um, and of course, my, my Two backup generators failed um, after, after about half an hour after into the uh, the blackout, so, um, and I wasn't able to get the uh, electrician in to fix them. Of course, because we were cut off. And can you describe to people just going through, you know, not one but two floods, and then constant wet weather, and now I suppose just these weather warnings coming back again, and we're seeing minor to moderate flooding um, likely today in the Wilsons. How does that make you know yourself as a farmer that's already been hit feel? Uh, yeah, extremely nervous. <laughs> I just uh, hope, hope it, we don't. Uh, I was so lucky last night. Um, there was a big mass of, of rain coming straight at us, and it managed to slip through the south. So. Have you spoken to neighbours and things? How are they looking? Um, yeah, they're, they're all okay. Um, my uh, my neighbour on the on the north side. I just saw him today. He lives in town, but he, he was coming out to move his cattle. Um, but yeah, uh, so far, touch wood, we we haven't been impacted too much. Lismore farmer Simon Clark uh, speaking there to Keely Johnson. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 18 to 1. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hunter Valley horse studs say a move to ban open-cut mining in one part of the Upper Hunter gives their operations certainty for the future. The New South Wales government announced it will prohibit open-cut mining on the Dartbrook coal mine site near Aberdeen to protect the region's thoroughbred breeding industry. The mine is due to reopen with underground operations within 18 months, but as Amelia Bernasconi reports, the community has long questioned whether that would open the door to open-cut. It was closed in 2006 and in recent years the reopening of the Dartbrock coal mine has been a controversial conversation across the Upper Hunter. After years going through planning assessments and then appeals in courts, earlier this year the new owners, Australian Pacific Coal, finally got the go-ahead to mine until the end of 2027. That'll all be underground, but over the weekend, the New South Wales government closed the door to any future open-cut mining. Racing Minister Kevin Anderson made the announcement at a local thoroughbred stud. A few years ago, uh, when they talked about open-cut, it was not supported, but that's not enough. You need that certainty to be able to allow those not only in the industry to continue on uh, investing in their own industry, but also to attract new business. And we've heard that uh, there are others uh, within the breeding industry, not only in New South Wales and Australia, but globally, uh, who would look to come here if there was certainty. So we need to uh, send that very clear message uh, to uh, breeders that there is certainty in and around this area. Racing Minister Kevin Anderson there, and it was no secret that some high-profile studs had looked and even bought land elsewhere due to the threat of open-cut mining. Yarraman Park owner Arthur Mitchell. 
this being the major breeding area, I do know two of the, the major thoroughbred investors in the world invested, bought their land and invested their money in Victoria. And the reason they did this was because of the fear of open-cut mining. So one's a, a big Chinese outfit called Yulong, who have you know, got a vast operation now based in Victoria. And then there was one called Spendthrift, an American operation, who looked at the hunter and said it's too risky. So with um, this SEP going through, it'll give us certainly, you know, there'll be more people will be showing a more active interest in investing in the thoroughbred industry in the Hunter Valley. And you've got to remember, this isn't what we've done for this, isn't just for the thoroughbred industry at all. There are lots of people here, there's lots of farmers, and I mean, it's, it's just we happen to want to lead the charge and, uh, you know, did the best we can, but it's certainly involving the whole community. Yarraman Park owner Arthur Mitchell. The main concerns were around air pollution and possible impacts to water sources. Minister Anderson says how the company adheres to rules concerning its underground mining. That's a matter for DARPRO. Does this give an indication of where your government stands, you know, obviously in the lead up to March uh, when it comes to open cut mining and other industries across the state? No, in terms of what we need to do is look at it on a case by case basis. Uh, Mining does play a very important part in the region's economy, there's no doubt about that. But when you start to encroach on other industries and you start to negatively impact on other industries, uh, then you need to have a serious look. Dr Cameron Collins is the president of the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association, which has pushed back at Dartbrook's reopening through independent assessments and court appeals. And Dr Collins says he's unsure of what the future would have looked like if open-cut mining had been allowed at Dartbrook. These are big operations, big businesses. They they are constantly managing their risk and and the threat of open-cut coal mining encroaching on their businesses is a major risk for them. So, yeah, yep, they've, they've looked around. Can you give us a scope of, you know, the thoroughbred industry across the Hunter and what the future would have been like if Open Cut was allowed at Dartbrook? Uh, look, I, it, it's hard to say. You know, the the um, the industry relies on its on the environment. Uh, it relies on the water. It relies on the air. Um, open Cut mining that close to our our industry has been recognised by a number of packs over a number of mines over the past 12 years to say that they're incompatible land uses in close proximity. So open-cut coal mining, world-class thoroughbred breeding can't coexist in side-by-side. The thoroughbred breeding industry has been part of the Upper Hunter for nearly 200 years. I think with this kind of certainty and this kind of support from the state government, uh, we feel we can be here for another 200 years or indefinitely and keep contributing to the state's economy. Dr Cameron Collins from the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association. And this morning, Dartbrook's owners Australian Pacific Coal announced it was seeking a moratorium on the move to allow further consideration. The statement to the Stock Exchange went on to say underground mining activities akin to those currently proposed in accordance with approvals would not be prohibited. Member for Upper Hunter Dave Lazell has told the ABC he'll strongly oppose that moratorium. Upper Hunter reporter Amelia Bernasconi with that story and you can read more about it online on the ABC Rural website. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 13 minutes to one. Well, on Friday, the Governor of New South Wales, Mary Beasley, celebrated the latest round of Churchill Fellows. A Norfolk Island and, and Norfolk Island welcomed a new fellow who is hoping to improve the remote island's food security and self-sufficiency by looking at small-scale food processing. Rebecca Gupti is a poultry farmer on the island who thinks that the boom-bust cycle of agricultural production can be smoothed out there with a bit of planning and a little bit of investment. I caught up with Rebecca after the Churchill Fellows Celebration Dinner at the Royal Automobile Club in Sydney. 
Yeah, look, we have a very unique place. Um, we have a lot of difficulties with shipping. Um, because we're surrounded by reef, ships can't actually unload uh, on land. They're all unloaded at sea. Um, the ships that can do that are less and less these days. So we're not having ships come. Um, so there's been a big issue. We have the most amazing local freshly grown produce and so you know the whole concept of of eat local and fresh and you know our food miles are we're talking meters not miles but we don't have any way at the moment to um, lengthen the life of our produce on the island for island-wide so that's a really big issue we have a glut of things when they're in season and then we have nothing um, and also because of our biosecurity um, constraints. It's very difficult to actually import fresh produce. Um, so we, we need to improve our food security on the island to make sure that we can cover ourselves in, in times and have more access to our freshly produced local food. And that means some sort of food processing or you're looking at sort of processing or ramping that up on the island? Yeah, so we're looking at um, setting up a community-owned not-for-profit um, organisation that will look at food processing for a number of different things. So we're looking at freezing uh, vegetables and things when, when they're in surplus so that we don't have to import frozen vegetables. Um, we have fantastic citrus on the island, you know. Why are we importing orange juice? Um, so something that's going to be able to work small scale uh, for a population of 2,000, but we're going to be able to uh, produce our own bottled juice um, frozen vegetables, dried fruits, all these kind of things, um, avocado oil perhaps, because we have abundant avocados that just go to rot. Mm. Um, and that's the other thing is the when we have that surplus, a lot of the food is going to waste um, and we have this all or nothing on the island. Like if a ship hasn't come in, often there's no flour, there's no rice, there's no sort of things like that. So we need to ensure that we've got something there if a ship doesn't come. That's sort of like a microcosm for um, any other sort of island nation, really. I mean, not, not, not to the extent of Australia, but a micro, microcosm for other island nations. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and I think we're lucky in Norfolk Island, if we can get it happening, um, we can actually be a place that other people can look at and go, hey, that's how they did it, how can we do it? Mm. Um, so the issue is, is actually trying to get it up and established um, economically and effectively on such a small scale um, that can, you know, cover a whole range of things. And so where are you going? Where are you travelling to sort of get some of those ideas? Um, so interestingly, most people use their church or fellowship to travel internationally. For me, internationally means um, regional Australia. Um, so I'm actually looking at Tasmania, Victoria, uh, South Australia, um, all great food processing, oh, food production areas, um, and also uh, New Zealand. So I'm looking at things that are being done on small scale elsewhere in Australia uh, and New Zealand and how we can apply that for a population of 2,000 people. And, uh, the, uh, so the idea, though, it, it's transportable to other nations or other, other islands. And, you know, I'm thinking about the Pacific, I'm thinking about the Caribbean. It's transportable elsewhere, you know, absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and just that whole concept of having um, 
the diverse range of food processing. So it's not a business that's going to be producing enough for export. It's just for ourselves and just that security of being able to have the food. And I guess the other thing is having it community-owned means that we're going to encourage hopefully more people to actually grow and backyard growers and and give them an opportunity for their produce to actually be used um, as part of it as well. I mean, that's the other thing too, like we've seen, you know, cooperatives are coming back in for agriculture, that whole idea of, idea of community-owned, locally-based. So obviously you've, you've thought about that, you think that's important? Uh, yeah, well, especially considering how far away we are from everything, um, having it community-owned and having it locally is, is the only way it's going to work. Um, we don't have a state government that responds, you know, looks after us, so we're missing that sort of level of of governance and that sort of thing. Um, So we need to do it ourselves. Talking about uh, the uh, one of the latest uh, Churchill Fellows, newly minted Churchill Fellow there is uh, Rebecca Gupta, who's a poultry farmer on Norfolk Island and, as I said, 2022 Churchill Fellow. Let's go to Bendigo Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers nearly tripled today to 21,000 lambs and 9,000 sheep as flooded roads reopen. There was more weight and quality in the suckers and buyers did chase a bit harder to create a market that was 5 to $10 dearer for processing lambs above 24 kilos carcass weight. But prices are only similar for the wishy-washy trade lambs, with a lot of these showing up with inconsistent fat cover. The heaviest suckers over 30 kilos carcass weight, 250 to $272. The 26 to 30 kilo lambs received the best support at 220 to 261 to average $237. Good heavy trades, 24 to 26 kilos, 196 to 217. But the general run of medium trades, 155 to $190. On a carcass basis, the best suckers, 800 to 850 cents, but slightly off trade type, 760 to 800 cents. Not much change in sheep price with heavy mutton subdued at 137 to $152. Lighter sheep, 100 to $130 for most. Ballpark mutton costs 450 to 500 cents. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Two Corowa sheep and lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers declined but quality lifted. Agents penned a total of 14,260 sheep and lambs with over 6,000 new season lambs available. Most buyers were present with the exception of one major domestic processor absent. The market was 5 to $15 dearer. Medium and heavy trade lambs gained $15.178 to $2.15. Heavies averaging $0.860 cents per kilo carcass weight. Heavy lambs were unchanged, 205 to 226. Extra heavy export types lifted in places, 226 to 266. Light new season lambs sold to softer trends, processors paying from 90 to 150, restockers 96 to 152. Shorn old lambs continue to be well supplied. Heavy lambs were firm, 194 to 220. Extra heavy export types were unchanged, 234 to 262. Mutton this week was softer with the exception of the occasional isolated sale. Heavy merino ewes were $13 softer, $124 to $148. Crossbred ewes sold up to $170, lifting in places. Trade sheep slipped $12.98 to $129. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. Dubbo sheep and lambs. 
With all the rain about, numbers were back by around 14,000 for a yarding of 11,500 lambs. It was a mixed yarding with some good pens of well-finished new season lambs, both trade and heavyweights, and there were fair numbers of heavyweight old lambs. There were fair numbers of merino lambs, some well-finished and some very plain, and there were good numbers of hogger charted. Trade weight new season lambs are 5 to 9 dero, selling from 139 to 214, to average from 8 to 800 to 875 cents a kilogram. Trade weight old lambs were 8 dollars dero, selling from 155 to 211. Heavyweight lambs up to 30 kilograms were 7 dero, with the 24 to 30 kilogram lambs selling from 210 to 239, while the heavier weights over 30 kilograms were firm, selling from 235 to 281. Heavyweight new season lambs sold to 229. Merino lambs are firm with the trade weight selling from 135 to 190, while heavyweight merino lambs sold to 219. Restocker lambs were $5 dearer, selling from 60 to 139. Hoggets sold to 175. We have the balance of the lambs and 3,150 mutton still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Let's go to Wagga Cattle now. Good afternoon. 1,960 cattle were offered to the usual spring buying group. However, there were less feedlot and restocker orders, which did result in cheaper trends for secondary cattle. There were a few veal, 540 to 580. Wiener steers back to the paddock were back 25, 605 to 725. Trade steers were firm, $5 to 577. Trade heifers jumped up 20 cents on account of quality, 460 to 580. Feeder steers lost 10 to 20 cents, lightweights 505 to 626, the medium weights 512 to 582. Feeder heifers, medium weight were unchanged, 570 to 540, the, medium, the lighter weights 520 to 580. Heavy feeder steers, 488 to 558, heavy steers to the kill were back 20, 410 to 530, bullocks were down 14, 420 to 522, heavy cows were unchanged, 418 to 436, Leanne Dax, MLA. Let's go to Forbes Cattle now. Numbers more than halved this sale with agents yarding 548 head. Quality was reduced slightly from the previous sale, though there was a better run of cows on offer. The usual bars are present competing in a fairly similar market. Yearling steers to feed sold from 490 to 597 cents for middle and heavy weights. The finished lines to processors sold from 515 to 560. The heifer portion to feed received from 490 to 547, while processors paid from 480 to 587 for the better finished types. Heavy steers and bullocks received from 484 to 514. Grown heifers sold from 420 to 494. And a good penning of cows lifted 4 cents with heavy cows selling from 406 to 416. The best heavy bull reached 344. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. And Tamworth cattle now. Good afternoon. Again, flooding reduced the offering with just 334 head penned, a very mixed quality penning, all categories represented by a few reduced buyer and tenants. Varying trends saw yielding steers to restock and feed cheaper, quality and a lack of supply contributing. Lightweights to restockers, 470 to 680 cents. The medium weights sold from 380 to 570, with heavy feeders, 454 to 525 cents. Affirmed a slightly dearer trend for the heavy trade yielding heifers, they sold from 456 to 470. Cents. Heavy ground steers to process also saw a firm to dearer trend, 500 to 600 kilos, 446 to 498. The heavy weights sold from 444 to 460. Well finished ground heifers, 350 to 475. The cow market was also cheaper with the lack of supply contributing. Heavy three and four scores, 370 to 387 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Tamworth. That's the market information for today and lots of text coming through saying Google Maps and uh, live traffic uh, inherently unreliable in the bush. It's one o'clock.